This is a No Dama podcast. I'm Brian Hogan, and today I'm joined by Todd Gardner, president and co-founder of Chat.js and JavaScript developer. And this is his second time on the podcast. Thank you very much for joining me, Todd. Thanks for having me back, Brian. So for people who haven't heard our previous podcast, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Sure. So uh, I'm a JavaScript developer. I have been for quite a few years. Um, Maybe four or five years ago, uh, I started a, a software as a service company called TrackJS that does JavaScript error monitoring, mainly uh, because I wrote a lot of really bad code that would blow up in my users' browsers, and I needed a way to know when that bad code got out there and how I could fix it. Um, I do a number of other things now. I speak a lot of conferences where you and I run into each other a fair number of times, uh, and I run uh, the PubConf developer after party. What's PubConf? So PubConf is basically like a late night talk show comedy thing that we do after software conferences. Uh, I rent out a bar. I partner with some conference who's going to be bringing together a bunch of amazing people. And we throw, uh, we have like short comedy bits from, you know, really amazing speakers who are in town for the conference. And it's a good time. We get some companies to help us sponsor beer and food. And it's just a great time. Yeah, I just published, so we're recording this middle of March, and I just published a podcast with Adam Ralph. Uh, he took part in PubConf in London. Yeah, yeah, Adam Adam did a talk uh, for PubConf London, and I thought it was particularly amazing. Uh, he he did a, it was his first time ever speaking, but he really like brought it home because he uh, actually executed GitHub pull requests as part of his talk, like he had it all queued up and he hit a button on his phone and then like seven PRs went out that was just like the punchline of his talk. And it was it was super funny. So the main topic in this podcast is going to be about sort of the developer and promoting yourself, promoting your product and the like. But just before we get to that, do you want to say anything more about TrackJS? Um, sure. So what I've been speaking about at conferences for the last six to, to nine months is about how do you promote yourself as a developer? And all of those lessons came out of kind of that shift I've made from uh, being a JavaScript developer to being a JavaScript developer and a business owner. Uh, so TrackJS is this is this product that we bootstrapped. We, we didn't take any outside investment. We built it nights and weekends ourselves uh, to, to where it's at now where we're protecting, you know, billions of, of page session or page views every month from some huge companies like Google and Stack Overflow and Microsoft um, are using our product uh, to help make the web a little less buggy than it normally is. Uh, it's very impressive because I I just look back. We spoke in 2015, uh, episode 22 of the podcast, and I think you were only going about six months public, whereas now, as you say, you're at the billions of uh of hits per month. Yeah, we've we've grown quite a bit. There's a bunch of new stuff that we've done, things we've learned along the way, both in terms of like what is important for for the users and, you know, how to talk about the product effectively, which is which is where a lot of the lessons around promoting yourself and marketing came from. Yeah, and that leads me now to the, the kind of the first question I'm going to ask you is, you know, you've got a fantastic product and doesn't it just sell itself, Todd? <laughs> You know, when we when we first started, that's that's what we believed, right? That it's a very common fallacy among developers to believe that oh, if they just have something that is superior to the other things in the market, 
it's clearly going to win, right? You don't have to put any effort into it. You just announce, hey, I built this thing and it's amazing. You should totally use it and and it, you just win. And that doesn't happen at all, not at all. It wasn't until um, with TrackJS that we started putting significant effort towards marketing the product, towards talking about the product, going on podcasts, going to software conferences, advertising, all, all of these things to spread the message. Um, it wasn't until we started doing those things that we really started growing. We didn't fundamentally change anything about the software. It was just, you need to talk about the software at least as much as you spend building it, right? Like developers are, they tend to be a little bit more shy around doing sales. They tend to be a little bit more introverted. And so this, this whole notion is very uncomfortable to many of us, um, including me. And, uh, you need to, to kind of get past that, right? You need to get to a point where you're proud of this thing that you've built, you want to talk about, it. you need to share it with other people because even if you have the most brilliant piece of software in the world, nobody's gonna care unless you can convince them to care. And how did you start doing that? I know you said meetings, presentations and things like that, but I presume there's more though. Yeah, so there's there's lots of different ways you can do it. There's, um, um, there's a there's a cool book that I read around this time called Traction. I can't remember who it's by. Um, I can I can send you a show notes yeah, it's thing fine. later. I'll, um, I'll put a link in the, to the book in the show notes. Cool. But so Traction talks about like all these different ways to like brainstorm and figure out how do you want to talk about your product, um, and that kind of helped give me some some structure to to how to go about thinking about this. One of the things that's worked really well for us is I like, developers tend to be skeptical of salespeople. They tend to be skeptical of anybody who has sales in their title. They're even skeptical of people who call themselves, you know, technical advocates or evangelists because many of us know that their job, they're, they're still a salesperson who also knows how to code. Um, and so understanding that um, you need to get over that skepticism when we're trying to sell to somebody. And the way to do that is to prove some credibility, to show that like, hey, I, I've been in your shoes. I know these problems that you're facing. I fought them myself. And here's a way you could help solve them. And so I can do that by putting together talks. Um, so I can put together a talk about how to solve a particular kind of issue using real life examples. Um, I spent many, many years as a JavaScript, con uh, JavaScript consultant for big companies. And so I have a lot of those war stories I can draw on uh, about how things went wrong and how things broke. And by going to a, a software conference and presenting these sort of things, um, I can first establish myself as, you know, I'm a developer too. I have these stories, you know, I can establish some, some credibility and and then I can talk about this, the software product I build and having those relationships being more than just a, you know, a site on the Internet being like some being a service that's built by somebody that, you know, like people say, oh, I met Todd at you know, at NDC London and I went to his talk and we talked about JavaScript for a while. And then he and then he showed me this tool he built called TrackJS. That is a really powerful way to sell a product that 
it doesn't scale out super well. Like you can't do that millions and millions of times. But the people that you meet that way are are really sticky. Like they like you have a personal relationship with them. Like they'll email me and they know who I am and I know who they are. And I we make a joke about this, you know, that you know, Angular had done something silly that week and we'd made a joke about it. And you know, well, we can we can bond it's more than just a customer relationship, it's a friendly relationship. Uh, and so those things have been really powerful for us is, is building those out. Plus they're just fun, right? Is I have these awesome relationships with developers all over the world through the, through the conferencing setup. You're right. I've, I've, um, made a podcast with Ben Cull as well. I know, you know, Ben, yeah. and he has a slide in his presentation about it. it's all about people. It's all about the relationships. You know, the, the people who buy something from you will give you better feedback. They'll be more tolerant of problems. They'll help you out. They'll evangelize. They'll advocate. Uh, so yeah, you need to build up those relationships. Yeah, those relationships turn into your your champion sales force, right? It's like they're they'll go back into their companies and into their communities and talk about those awesome relationships that they have and and sell your product forward for you. But you did say though it doesn't scale. So you know you've gotten into Google, you've gotten into Stack Overflow. Were those true personal relationships, or was it because you had reached some some point where you know Tracks.js is considered that good that Google will notice. It's it's a little bit of both. Um, how it works is uh, the initial contacts with all kinds of companies usually come in through a conference. Like so, for example, uh, I met with some of the folks from Stack Overflow at NDC London, I believe, two years ago. Uh, and they'd come to my talk. I had talked about how to get better error messaging, uh, how to how to how to debug a particular uh, subset of JavaScript kind of errors. And they'd come to my talk, and they'd come to to talk about TrackJS, and they were interested. And we built up that personal relationship with you know a handful of folks there. And then and then they you know they they went away and they tried it. And they had internal conversations where they evaluated the merit of the tool versus some other options. And they found that like it was it was more than just a relationship. It was it actually improved the, the quality of their site. It, you know, it, it did the things that it needed to do. It helped them expose issues. It gave them actionable error reports. It, it told them when they needed to care about a front end bug versus just giving you pretty graphs. And because they, we had both the relationship and the quality of the product that came in and, and landed a customer that has been uh, been with us for some time. Have you hired a salesperson? We have not. We tried a few times actually. Uh, we've been very gun shy about doing it because because of this thing I was talking about, where I think developers are very skeptical of salespeople. Um, that you know. Full disclosure, that might just be me projecting is that I'm very suspicious of salespeople, but I haven't met any, I've never had a conversation with some developers that have just been like, oh, I just can't wait for that salesperson from CA to call us back. That dude is so fun. I've, I've never heard that conversation, right? <laughs> never. True. It's always, they're, they're always like slimy or they're distrustworthy or they're not helpful. Like I, I've never heard developers positively describing a sales relationship before. And let unless that company has found a way to make it not sales. Um, and so so we've had a couple of different people approach us and say that they want to help us with sales. And once we even got to a point where we like hired this person as a contractor to like 
see if we could figure something out. And it's just, it, it didn't work out. Like it's, we approached it with what we thought our ideals for the relationship should be as far as here's, we want, you know, this person that we'd hired had some development expertise. Uh, they were supposed to kind of take this thing that I had been working on around building relationship and carry it forward. Um, but as I watched their interactions with potential customers, it looked like sales. And so it was all, it was skin deep and we needed to cut it off. So we, we've never had a really successful relationship on that just because there's still fundamentally salespeople following a sales process. And I don't think that works particularly well for the kind of, the kind of customers that we're looking for and the kind of selling that we, we want to do. So then you have to change your role within a company. So you started as uh, obviously heavily technical, your president, co-founder. Um, I imagine, you know, one of the, the main developers because there's only a few of you. Um, but now you're more than that. You own a business. You have other things. Um, you have, I imagine, well, you have to do some sales. You have to do some marketing. You have to deal with taxes. You have to deal with, you know, a multitude of things. So what's it like moving from being a dev to owning a business? You spend a lot of time in spreadsheets. No. Um, there's all kinds of things that are, are different. So fundamentally, you're right. Fundamentally, I am a developer. And I still love when I get to do software development. I was working on some stuff actually uh, today on you know gathering some different data from our website. Um, when we first started... Uh, we thought we had this fallacy that, you know, great products sell themselves. So we spent all of our time on the product. Uh, Eric Brandis and I, who's, who's my partner on, on, on this, uh, we would work, you know, we'd meet up at a bar and we'd code for four hours or we'd go to a coffee shop on a Saturday or whatever and code for 12 hours. And we poured all of our time and effort into building the code, building the infrastructure, figuring out how we were going to do these sort of things. But when we realized that we needed to sell it, um, my role started shifting and it was my role and not his mainly because he was more, um, he's probably a de better developer than I am. And so it made sense for him to stay. And he was very much not inclined to talk to other people. Uh, so it, it kind of naturally went that way. And neither of us were interested in, in hiring a CEO. Neither of us wanted to hire somebody else to be our boss. Plus, we didn't really have the revenue to pull it off at that point. Um, so we decided that it was going to become more of my role to run the business operations. So I had to figure out all of those these other things that goes into to being a business. So there's some boring parts of it. There's you know legal documents. There's financial documents. There's that sort of stuff. But uh, probably something that I grown to think is is just as exciting as the code is the marketing of the product um it's this it's this huge open creative space where you get to figure out you know what what should your stuff look like what kind of message should it tell what's your personality when you're talking as a company versus your personality when you're talking as yourself um and so it, it's you have a lot of opportunity to be creative in that space um, in a different way than than how I got to be creative with software or even or even visual design, um, because you get a look at uh, different communities and how messages resonate with different communities. Um, 
and I think there's some some interesting parallels with software development there that that have been that have been fun. When you talk about personalities there, because it's just two of you, um, your brand and the brand of TrackJS must be somewhat linked or even very linked. So how do you manage those two things? You're right. You're right. I, because I am the primary force behind TrackJS branding, uh, TrackJS has adopted some of my own uh, way of doing things. And so track, the TrackJS brand does sound like me sometimes because I'm the primary author of it. But I do try and keep them separate. Um, like I don't, uh, I don't blatantly tweet about TrackJS very often. Uh, I try and keep, you know, my personal, you know, Todd Gardner stuff, Todd Gardner's blog, Todd Gardner's Twitter separate from, from TrackJS as, as much as I can. Um, which has some downsides, honestly, is it's hard to maintain two things from one person. Like I can't keep up and write something as often as I'd like on my personal blog and on the TrackJS blog. I just don't have enough writing bandwidth to do both things. And so whenever I'm pushing on one, the other tends to suffer. But I do think it is important that the brand of your company needs to be separate from you because you're not going to be the one driving it all the time. Um, you're going to, you know, if you do well and you grow, you'll be able to hire people to help you with it. And they need to take that forward with, with whatever you've set, set down for what the brand is going to be. Um, and if you have partners for them to drive it, uh, for them to drive it as well. One of my favorite kind of personalities or, or people who talk about this sort of thing in the startup space is this character named fake Grimlock, who's at fake Grimlock on Twitter. Um, who has the, you know, a persona that's obviously separate than the real person where they've created this persona of a giant robot dinosaur who wants to talk about startups. Um, and this person types in all capital letters with kind of broken English. And it, it kind of, it's endearing in a way that like you can forgive mistakes in you, uh, mistakes in how they might write uh, because it's part of the style and you get to the core message of what this person's talking about, um, which is some really important lessons that get around a lot of uh, businessy kind of bullshit garbage to how does a business create value for the world that's worth enough that people are willing to pay you for it. Hmm, interesting. I feel like I totally just rambled there. No, no. But so if you were, okay, so to, to, to maybe be uh, a little more focused, how would you suggest people build a brand for something that they're going to build? So the way to start thinking about a brand is a brand needs to have a few things. And so um, Fate Grimlock uh, calls these uh, the minimum viable personality. So three kind of basic things that you need to figure out about your brand in order to, to start from there and, and build from, from that. And so the three rules of a minimum viable personality is first, how do you want to change the world? What is the thing that your, that your brand, that your, your business, your product, what is the one thing that you want to change about the world? In the case of TrackJS, our position of what, how we wanted to change it is there's a lot of really bad JavaScript on the web that breaks in really frustrating times. 
And the developers don't always get that visibility. And so what we want to do is we want to build a better web, essentially. We want to give developers the tools to know when the web is breaking so that they can make it better. So then the second question of minimum viable personality is what do you stand for? So what are the basic principles that are going to um, that are going to support how you want to change the world? Um, one of the things that we see in TrackJS is that um, there's a lot of really powerful tools in the application monitoring space. Like there's tons and tons of like really cool tools and really expensive tools and, and all kinds of uh, advanced data analytics. But a lot of them are almost too powerful. As in you can get anything that you want in the world, any kind of information you want in the world out of them. You just have to figure out how to write, you know, 20 lines of our archaic queries to figure out how to pull all the data together. So what we thought was important is that the tool is really simple, that you can drop it in and we're gonna tell you the most likely information that you wanna know right up front. And we're willing to sacrifice some of the powerful, like advanced custom query capabilities in order to get to focus on the simple. We wanna have a tool that like people who are um, just, you know, just installing an error monitor for the first time can immediately start getting value for it without needing to spend a month learning how to how to use all the advanced capabilities. And then the third thing to establish your minimum viable personality, and this is a thing a lot of people um, have a little bit of angst about, is what do you hate? Like, so what are you against? Um, and I know this isn't a very positive message, but like you can't really be for something unless you're against something. Without this one, you come off wishy-washy. And so what do we hate? Like what was the thing that TrekJS hated is we hated when you'd go to a web page and there was an error that like stopped you from, from doing what you needed to do. So much so that like some of our early marketing um, uh, shticks supporting this was we would actually like shame people on Twitter. We'd be like, hey, giant company, you have an error cut keeping your things. You should sign up for our service with TrackJS. That kind of blew up in our face uh, a couple of times. And so we don't do that anymore, but it's still kind of part of our personality that um, that we point out this thing whenever it happens um, as, a, as a way to try and push the ball forward. You just mentioned there something that kind of went wrong along the way. What were the other pitfalls that you came across uh, going from small to medium to successful? There's so many, there are so many pitfalls along the way. Um, I guess we'll, I can talk about some familiar ones and then some unique ones. So some familiar ones that you might've heard before, if you've thought about, you know, starting your own company, or if you've done it, you've read any of the literature in, in the overall space is don't overbuild. Like you don't need to build. Let me, let me rephrase that. Uh, you don't need to start at web scale. Like that doesn't, that word doesn't mean anything. When you first are building your system, you don't need to have um, advanced virtualization and tons of containers and the ability to scale to trillions of page requests per minute. Um, you don't need that at the beginning. The thing you need at the beginning is you need money. You need to figure out a way for somebody who is going to use your piece of software to like it enough that they want to give you a dollar for it. 
That's that's what you need. Figure that out. And you can honestly build the software, like the, the back end of it, in whatever way allows you to go fast, as fast as possible to change things up and respond so that you can figure out how to get that dollar. That should be kind of a familiar kind of trope in startup land around minimum viable product and quickly iterating. Kind of specific to the software developer side of that is we tend to want to iterate on the technical things so much that we forget to iterate on the personal engagement things. So I've talked with so many uh, entrepreneur developers who are building out their first product or building out their first website, and they're wrestling with these technology choices about, you know, how do, do they use reactor view for their web page or how do they get http2 up and going or how are they going to do you know this other technological thing and what they're actually doing is they're wasting time they found a tool to procrastinate from what they actually need to be doing which is talking to a customer and getting money um, because they found this technology thing that they've blown up in their head to be a core part when honestly it doesn't matter you can just pick something and move forward and it doesn't you don't need to agonize over the choice until it's a big choice um i've personally made that mistake so many times where i just get wrapped up in some some technology minutiae that it, that I don't think is minutia when I have my head in it. Like it's like a big architectural choice and I'm trying to figure out like which is the right way to do it. But if I can take a step back and think about the business at large, it doesn't matter. What I need to be doing is just make a decision, move on and go and call a customer and, and have a conversation about what's the next thing we should do for them. Um, because more often than not, that's, that's the thing that's going to drive your business forward is spending time talking and helping your customers and less time on the technology itself. What have you enjoyed the most about building, you know, the product or the company? It is incredibly rewarding. So when I was an, uh, an enterprise consultant, I was one small cog in a giant machine. And no matter it was, it was always very hard to understand where do I fit in into an overall machine. It's even when I was like a project lead. I was still a project lead on something that was adding some capability to some business's portfolio. And, and I might be several layers removed from the people who are making marketing decisions or the people who are supporting the customers. Or maybe I would never even get to talk to the customer themselves. And, and that was always so frustrating. And it was easy to get off on weird tangents. It was easy to spend a month, like, um, just totally refactoring a product because we we didn't really understand what it was for. It, it's just so easy to make these bad technology decisions when you don't have the full perspective. Moving from from that world into the into this one where. I, we are the entire cycle. We, we write the code, we deploy the code, we support the code, we sell to the customer, we support the customer, we deal with outages, it's everything. It gives you a much more holistic view 
of software development and what's really important. We spend um, a lot more time on active monitoring of customers and how they're interacting with the products. And we spend a little bit less time, frankly, writing tests. Um, we test things that we think are fragile and, and could break. Often we'll just try and change those bits of code so that they're less fragile and less likely to break. And we'll spend more time um, instrumenting things. Uh, there's a, a great quote I heard once um, that I cannot remember who to attribute it to, but it was like any sufficiently advanced software testing approach is indistinguishable from production monitoring. It's like as these things get better and better, they, they tend to coalesce. Um, and so the this holistic perspective has been what's been the most rewarding. It's the fact that like I can see how an action that I'm taking today is going to affect real people. And I'll hear from those real people about how we made their product better. And that's that's amazing. I've never felt like I've had bit more impact as a software developer than I do right now. Sounds very, very nice. Any final notes before we wrap up for today, Todd? Uh, I have a couple. Um, so I am based in uh, outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, for all the folks who might be conference junkies like me, we have a fantastic conference coming to the area in May. Uh, the NDC Conference Group is bringing an event uh, here to St. Paul, Minnesota, NDC, Minnesota. Um, it's going to be really great. It's NDC's first conference in the United States. And Minnesota is amazing in May. You should totally come and hang out. And then on May 10th, on the last day of that NDC conference, we're going to hold a PubConf here in Minnesota as well. Um, details are already out at pubconf.io about it. We'll open up tickets sometime in April. Uh, we have a great lineup. I think we're actually going to have three former PubConf champions on the same stage. So in a way, PubConf Minnesota is the PubConf World Championships. Who are, um, who are some of the main speakers coming to Minnesota? So the, the three former champions are Laura Bell, who's from New Zealand. Uh, she runs uh, SafeStack, which is a security uh, software as a service company. Uh, and she won PubConf, Australia, or PubConf Sydney last year. Uh, we have Mark Rendell from the UK coming. He won PubConf London this, this past January. And then I think we have Jonathan Mills coming up from Kansas City, who won PubConf Kansas City last year. Um, in addition to that, we have a, a, a really great lineup of some other speakers. Uh, let me just pop open the I website. I think Troy so I Hunt is... No, unfor unfortunately, Troy Hunt is not going to make it up to Minnesota. Apparently, he's uh, too many trips to and from the U.S. this year. He couldn't swing it. But we have Dylan Beatty, who's going to come over from the U.K. We have Nal Merrigan coming over from Oslo. Udi we have Dahan, our I think, as well. Uh, Udi is going to be at NDC. He's not going to be at... Well, he might attend PubConf. I don't... He, he's not signed up for one of our speakers. We do have Lars Clint, who's going to come out from Australia talking about time zones at PubConf. That'll be fun. Very good. Anything else before we wrap up, Todd? I think we're all good. Thanks Great. so much for having me on your show again. Thank you again, Todd Gardner. If you like this episode, you might also like episode 93 with Ben Cull on his move from developer to startup founder and also episode 62 with Samantha Stone on launching tech products.
The opening music was The Return by Nisi23 from the album 11 and 12, and the closing music was Wash Out by Broke for Free from the album Petal.